Well, it gives me immense pleasure uh, to be able to speak uh, to this audience, which I, in a sense, consider my home audience because of what Eugene just mentioned, that over the last eight years I have been engaged uh, in the study of political economy of the Middle East and that was made possible uh, through my appointment at the center, but also uh, a more collaborative work uh, that has gone somewhat unnoticed, but actually the, both, both the institutions know the course and the value that it, it has offered uh, uh, to, to both programs. The title that I'm going to present uh, today um, is Work in Progress, and in a sense it has emerged from my experience of teaching at this university for the last eight years, particularly on the Middle East program. And the tension that I have faced is the following, that I have taught... Uh, political economy of the Middle East to a largely Middle East studies audience. And then I have taught political economy, mainstream political economy, to people at the Queen Elizabeth House. And whilst during the last eight years I have received numerous requests for uh, dissertations and extended essays uh, from the Middle East Center, largely focusing on the Middle East, um, but I've had hardly any request from economics or mainstream social science to study on the Middle East. And I was thinking why it is the case that a region so important, issues that are so important, social scientists do not want to engage, at least at the graduate level. And I think I would not like to blame the students or the social scientists for the simple reason that many of the prominent tools of social science, the ability to gather data, the ability to build counterfactuals, the ability to create competing explanations, the ability to conduct field experiments, all of those tools are rendered useless when it comes to the Middle East because you simply cannot approach the field. In fact, the Central University Research Ethics Form, which everybody now has to fill, would never be approved if you are working on the region. That's a real challenge. And in a sense... You're talking about a regime where you have research ethics, which are a huge problem when you want to study on the Middle East. You want to think about safety in the field. But actually, in effect, we have a safety in approaching the field, which means the Middle East, the study of the Middle East, or at least political economy, lives in a state of exception. And it is my one principal objective tonight to give you a sense of how important is the modern social science lens to understand the political economy of the Middle East. And what I'm going to do today is really to wear my Oxford hat and ask questions in the typical Oxford tutorial mode. Now, uh, most of these slides and ideas here, you feel free to quote, but please do cite Malik forthcoming. If you want the paper, hopefully in a month's time, uh, I would have the paper ready as well. Okay, off we go. What I want to do today is really talk about two things, political economy of violence in the Middle East. And in fact, if I had given this a title, political economy of development in the Middle East, excluding violence, it would have still been fine. Because you cannot study political economy of development without thinking about questions of violence. Violence is absolutely central to understanding what kind of social order you have in a country. And of course, you cannot study the Middle East without thinking about violence. And therefore, this could not be even more appropriate, uh, uh, even, even if we were not faced with ISIS, we were not faced with violence in the region, any talk on political economy of development in the Middle East should have included violence and in its title. 
Now, what I'm going to do today is to combine two elements. One, our understanding of social science analysis on violence. There are lots of studies um, on Latin America, on Africa, whole range of contexts in which political economists have thought about violence. And I'm going to marry that with our empirical realities of the Middle East. And I'm therefore going to argue that it provides us a very refined and rich understanding of the current events in the Middle East. Of course, we are dealing with a domain where there are vast zones of ignorance. Okay? So I'm not going to be too close to the events. I'm going to be far from the events, but really talking about the events and the effect it, they are having. So let's begin. Of course, we do know quite a bit about what ISIS is, but it's all based on media representation. We know it's kind of linked with the sectarian divide. It has emanated from a power vacuum generated first in Iraq, but also through subsequent interventions in Libya um, and Syria. We also have a lot of uh, 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 you know, ideas about the role that ideology plays, uh, so the sectarian divide, uh, uh, the different kinds of religious concepts that are used in this process. We also have some sense in which uh, there is foreign support, money and materials from the GCC states, foreign fighters, so on and so forth. But the challenge for the social science is really to go beyond the immediate spectacle. Because as my colleague Professor Talib, who I share an office with, usually says, if the reality uh, were exactly the same as, as what you're seeing, you won't need social science. Now, before I begin, let me offer a few clarifications. Firstly, I'm going to be talking about uh, a big area, the Middle East. There are huge differences in ideology, in natural resources. Uh, some are monarchies, others are republics. Some are labor abundant, others are labor scarce. Huge differences. But I believe in order to derive a common conceptual sense on the region, it's important first to generalize. And I think there are very strong reasons why we should generalize the Middle East and look at it as one region, because this is a region where economic and political power is hugely concentrated. I'm not going to be talking about ideology. Not that it doesn't matter, uh, but simply because I'm not qualified to look at it. Uh, and also because if, you know, there are interesting ways in which ideology, or too much focus on ideology, in a sense, takes our eyes away from the underlying distributions for economic and political power, in which both local actors and geopolitical forces are engaged with. I'm not going to be offering any causal explanation or definitive claims. These are all questions, plausible hypotheses, and this paper is certainly not about Daesh. So if you came to hear about Daesh, uh, you can actually free, you're free, free to leave. Okay. I'm going to be offering four key propositions, interrelated propositions. The first is that violence that you've seen through the ISIS-related episodes is very irrational, it's very insane, it's very cruel, but it is not a random or spontaneous generation. It is linked with the underlying logic of power. So there's a rational logic behind the entire irrationality of violence. Second, I'm going to argue that violence is grounded in the prevailing social order and distributional struggles over the control of friends. In other words, what happens before violence in times of peace is extremely important for us to understand in times of war. Third, violence is a temporary instrument. It is a moment of suspension 
it always represents a loss of power. It happens when all else fails. That means it is the last resort of the powerful or the powerless. And fourthly, an area to which social science hasn't contributed very much, where the Middle East could open a new door for a new area of research inquiry, is mapping the role of the external. So the external dimension is absolutely critical when you think about the political economy of the Middle East. I'm going to be focusing on three sets of questions. The first one is how important is what I call latent conflict in thinking about violence in the Middle East. And this latent conflict is really the conflict of violence of everyday life. It's violence and disorder that prevails in times of order. And my first proposition is going to be that if you want to think about violence, think about times of peace as well. If you want to think about order, you have to think about disorder. Both are part of the same institutional calculus. So what happens before? What are the structural sources of instability? The second set of questions uh, deal with the idea that you know, we do not know what converts this seething discontent in the Middle East to large-scale civil wars. We don't know what really triggers them. But what we can do is step back from the event and ask ourselves how the present violence is changing the underlying distribution of power, geopolitical power, political power, economic power in the region. In other words, we can pin down the economic, social, political beneficiaries and losers of this process. The third set of questions relate to the way in which the internal and the external constantly interplay in the Middle Eastern domain. In other words, I would like to argue that if you want to think about political economy of violence in the Middle East, the internal and the external are co-constituted. They're part of the same equation. And if that is the case, how do we really map the role of the external? Okay, without further ado, let us start thinking about uh, conflict, latent conflict, which is conflict in times of peace. And my first submission really is that in the Middle Eastern context, there are huge structural sources of instability, what I call the violence of everyday life. These are factors that sustain authoritarian stability. The same factors that sustain authoritarian stability create violence. Okay? So Marina Ottaway, for instance, wrote in Foreign Affairs last week uh, that Sisi has blocked all avenues for political mobilization. So the only way is the street. So things that actually promote authoritarian instability are the very factors that invite instability. And why is that is the, the, the case? It's the case because in societies where you have intermediate institutional structures, where people can protest, there are bargaining structures, they can deal with various kinds of actors and powerful patrons, uh, there is something that allows you to, to agree, okay? After all, what is a political process? A political process really brings together on the t table variant parties, very diverse groups, uh, on you know, some kind of agreement on disagreement. So there are hardly any intermediate structures that could provide institutional resilience. Or what economist Danny Roderick talked about, institutions of conflict management. Right? This everyday conflict, how it is mediated, what kinds of institutions can allow that. Now, the set of slides that I'm going to present you is hardcore data thinking about the different gaps that are emerging in this framework. But before I do that, I'm going to leave you 
with a very interesting book uh, written. Um, okay, that's that's later. But here you are. Uh, this is a plot that I added today. Um, and Alison Hartnett, who is uh, doing a PhD with me um, from the Middle East Center, um, prepared for me, in which I asked her to look at you know, anti-government demonstrations and protests. And before she made the plot, I gave her my prior, that countries where there are more protests are less violent. And in fact, Iran, you could see Iran and Turkey, some of the more, it's, this is a very unreadable plot was made in the morning, but basically these big lines are Iran, the green ones, and this is Turkey. Now, both of these places allow some space, some safety valve to operate. Okay? The second important point about this plot is the timing. So you see more of protests around the 80s and the 2000s. That means there's something happening about the social contract in those periods, some fiscal adjustments, some privatizations that are creating some tensions. But before we actually think about that evidence, let us think about uh, consider this book, which is a very interesting book written by a Nobel Prize-winning economist, um, Douglas North, who died uh, sadly last, uh, uh, last term. And it basically talks about the way in which every society has to deal with violence. Every social order is predicated on controlling violence. And the social orders that are limited are ones that limit people's access to economy, organizations, politics, and by limiting access it generates rents or unearned income streams. Those unearned income streams are then distributed to elites to create binding elite commitments. I'm going to present you an evidence very soon how, you know, Syria's military controlled vast tracts of informal economy. And those were rents, and those rents were distributed to elites who provided elite commitments for, uh, for uh, maintaining the, the, uh, the rule. Now, of course, what if these rents shrink? One of the things we are going to talk about is when these rents shrink, the possibility of violence increases. And certainly these rents shrank in the wake of economic liberalization, privatization, so on and so forth. So let us first think about the politics of fiscal adjustment. You're talking about a region which provided cradle-to-grave welfare systems since the 1960s. But many of these states that were not very resource-rich we're no longer able to do that. And in the 1980s, when the oil prices fell, there was a new politics of fiscal adjustment. And much of this latent conflict is located in this inability of the state to dispense or defer public provision. And so what you find is declining levels of public spending, erosion of the social contract, so you can no longer offer public sector jobs to all the people, you can no longer give subsidies to everyone. So a lot of that... The generosity of that social contract is difficult to sustain. And that burden of fiscal adjustment, in a sense, fell disproportionately on the middle-income classes. That is extremely important for understanding the age of protest politics. The second aspect which is very important to understand is that whilst these economies, in different ways, tried to liberalize Egypt in the 1980s and 1990s, Algeria somewhere in the 1980s and 1990s, and so on and so forth, all of these states, when they liberalized it was not a move from state capitalism to, to uh, you know, a market economy. It was basically a move towards crony capitalism. And crony capitalism itself is very exclusionary. And I'm going to present you some evidence in that regard. A third very important factor is the persistence of a significant shadow economy or informal economy, which, according to some very crude estimates, is about 
40% of GDP in most of these countries. I think this plot really explains what was going on. This basically gives you a sense of years of entry into the labor market. And the red line is showing how, in 1970, nearly 70% of the total workers in Egypt were employed in the public sector. Look at the mid-2000s. It's fallen to about 20%. Now, this slack is not picked by the private sector. The private sector, the blue line, is very stagnant. The private sector did not fill that gap of job creation. The gap was filled by whom? The informal sector. It's green line. I think this plot really encapsulates the politics of fiscal adjustment and the middle class grievance around it. The message is that you have a fiscal adjustment as part of which the state is contracting, but there is nobody to fill the vacuum. It's not the private sector that generates jobs. It's the informal sector that is taking the slack. So my sense is if you want to understand the politics of protest in the Middle East, you've got to understand the politics of the informal sector. Here is another plot that I love showing everyone. There would be many in this room who have already seen it. But it gives us a sense, a scale of the problem. It's the pyramid of privilege. So if you look at you know, Lela Trebelsi and Ben Ali, both the husband and the wife together control 220 companies. <laughs> together. And many of their relatives, their you know, direct daughters, but also extended family through Lala's family who also claimed significant stakes in the economy. These are people who are actually, this, when the state is privatizing, it is actually being taken over by many of these crony capitalists. That is creating an exclusionary regime. So, no surprise, if you were to take the Gallup polls and try and correlate corruption in the government, people, proportion of people who think the government is corrupt, the proportion of people who think businesses are corrupt, actually this huge correlation. In fact, in the Middle East, you know, businessmen and rulers in many cases are one, and therefore people's perceptions are not different. This, to my mind, is one of the most serious political economy challenges that the region faces. Because to create a private sector, you need to have somebody who fights for creating that private sector. You have a situation in the Middle East where the thing that is the most desirable is the one on which no political actor, no political mobilization is likely to rally around, which is a strong private sector. Here is another example of tariffs. For those of you who don't know what tariffs are, these are taxes on imports and exports. And as a result of economic liberalization, many of these countries had to reduce tariff barriers. So you could see, in Egypt's case, the blue line suggest that tariff barriers are coming down. But see how the red line, which is the non-tariff barriers, these are various kinds of procedural requirements, inspection requirements, sanitary and phytosanitary requirements, sounds very innocuous, but actually means a huge inspection regime that the state is going to implement. While one form of protection is falling, the other one is taken off. So in other words, you could see that in times of fiscal adjustment, in times of economic liberalization, the elite is very much protected. It is still operating in a very protected way. Here's a remarkable, another piece of evidence uh, from my friend Bob Richkers, who looked at data on Tunisia, and he argued the way in which the Benedi firms, the red line, post-privatization, their profits are the ones that really increased. 
And all the yellow and the orange lines, these are the ones that other firms in the industry, privatization didn't really benefit them at all. In other words, when you think about privatization in Tunisia, it's really privatization of profits by firms connected with Ben Ali's regime. And mind you, a lot of these connected firms are disproportionately present in sectors that are restricted through FBI restrictions, you require licensing, and a whole range of other um, exclusionary devices. The result is the following. You have, in the firm space, you have what we call the missing middle. There's a missing middle these days in everything. But particularly in the firm space, you're dominated by, you know, large number, you know, so these are small firms with three or four employees, 10 to 19 employees, and then these are large firms. So either you have very large firms or the bulk of the firms are really small firms. And much of the job is actually created in the small and medium enterprise sector. And firms actually do not grow as they age uh, in, uh, uh, you know, in, in experience. Now compare that with Turkey, obviously the middle range is very vibrant. You know, the 50 to 99, 10 to 19 employees, these are all middle-sized fir middle firms that are creating a lot of employment. And that means you have a process in which, after the Turgut Ozal's reform, you actually have a lot of new job creation that is taking place. What does that mean? It means that you are talking about an economy of tahassus. Basically, you're dividing various domains. And what the elite does is it divides various domains of the economy, controls vital access points to those economy. Okay, That means in the Middle East, in much of North Africa, for the businesses to survive, you either have to be too close to the state, i.e. crony capitalist, or too far from the state, that is the informal sector. And the irony that we have is that while privileges are concentrated amongst large connected firms, jobs are concentrated among informal sector firms. So a lot of the firms, those small firms that we saw here that are creating jobs, these are not the ones that are getting privileges. These are the ones that are getting the privileges. And that certainly creates a structural source of instability. Most importantly, I think... While we talk about ISIS and its control of informal economy, we never really remember that the regions that today ISIS controls are the very regions where the Syrian military controlled uh, large parts of the informal economy. And that is certainly true for thinking about violence in Algeria, right? Uh, the rise of the FIS in Algeria was basically preceded again by fiscal adjustment, eroding social contract, but a thriving parallel economy. In fact, our own George Jaffe uh, talked in his paper about how the activities of an informal, parallel economy, originally based on smuggling and now sustained through violence, is legitimized by the Islamist rhetoric. So, and the same thing in Syria. I mean, you read Haddad's excellent book. He talks about the way in which the conflict between the state and the Islamists in Syria in the 1970s and 80s was partly the result of a systematic exclusion of the small businesses from the souk. So, the informal sector is extremely important in thinking about violence. Why is that the case? Because in an informal domain, you're essentially talking about a domain where you have to deal with uncertainty. When you deal with uncertainty, you have to deal with patrons who allow you to negotiate that uncertainty. So in a, in a sense, these are all areas where you domesticate violence um, by tapping into the economy of violence, by devolving coercion. And lo and behold, of course, 
members of the Syrian military, intelligence, bureaucracy, Ba'ath Party officials, they controlled vast informal networks that were afforded by the Lebanese intervention in the 1970s. And smuggling rackets across the Turkish border, these are, by the way, the same areas where the ISIS controls these. In other words, where you have a thriving informal economy, where you have very limited, dense relationship of economic exchange are precisely the places where gaps, governance gaps emerge, and where one set of rentiers can replace another. And of course, Rifat al-Assad, the former head of defense and uncle of current president, many believe him to be the architect of the Hama massacre, was a key patron of this thriving black market, and he controlled millions of dollars uh, uh, of uh, black market. Now, of course, this is what, again, uh, you know, my Oxford colleague and anthropologist, Professor Talib, statement, the new inclusions are premised on old exclusions. It's basically to say, you know, it may be a new violent inclusions, but actually there are this huge systematic exclusion. There is a lot of everyday violence that is creating the space for new actors. And no surprise, if you look at the rentier caliphate of ISIS, it controls vast areas of oil refineries. These are mobile refineries. There's a huge supply chain here. And there is no surprise to me that it's the same area where the Syrian military controlled the informal economy. So by refusing to develop these regions, by refusing to create entrenched patterns of economic exchange that are independent, autonomous, they have actually invited um, more violent actors, of course. And of course, what you find in this plot is, is this map is the way in which the, the map of violence, in a sense, uh, you know, overlaps with the map of, uh, of uh, supply chain of the economy. So the red lines are the ones which are the ISIS attack zones. The other ones are where they control those zones. And of course, the zones that they control are the zones where they can extort money, they can uh, you know, derive money from oil, extortions, taxes, whole range of other devices. So the basic point that I've been talking about is that if you want to think about violence, Hardly there's any article that is relating the present violence to the rise, growth, sustenance of informal sector in Syria before the rise of ISIS. So to conclude this line of reasoning, we are talking about a region which has a history of fragmented state structures with very limited institutional resilience, a lot of latent conflict. There's an important role of dynamics in the sense that uh, you know, there's been an erosion of social contracts since the 1980s and 1990s, and there's a larger politics of exclusion and inequality. And of course, the sense you get is that it's usually banding around Islam. You know, the appeal of Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, uh, in Algeria, in Egypt, there's an interesting way in which overlaps with small businesses, with the informal sector, with the excluded part of the economy. And that's that's, again, a very interesting area. But what I want you to focus on, really, is this very interesting book that we all need to read in these times. I'm a great uh, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, disseminator of this <laughs> book. But it's, I've learned it's on Africa, but whatever you read, you change Africa, and you can really see that it applies to the Middle East. And the, what the book is really talking about is the way in which disorder is another form of politics. Disorder is also an important political instrument. And that's an example you get again and again from very many African cases. Okay, the picture I've built so far 
is the following, that there's an awful lot of latent conflict, weak institutions of conflict management in the Middle East prior to the conflict we have seen. Now, it's a huge leap of imagination from go, to go from there that there are grievances, there are structural sources of instability. For that to convert into active violence, there is a lot that is in between. We as social scientists are not equipped to answer that. We don't have that information that would allow us to make credible claims. But what we can do is remove ourselves from the scene and look at the situation from afar, ask who is benefiting, how is it changing the underlying political economy landscape of the region. And here, when I think about it, there is one slide that I think, if you were really to understand that slide, you will understand the message that I'm trying to portray here. It's certainly a slide that captures my own imagination about the Arab Spring. Because when I remember uh, you know, sitting before the television set and looking at these Tahrir Square protests, there were lots of different moments, lots of hours spent on it, but there's one image that never went away. And it was the image of the camels. The camels who tried to demobilize. And what I'm going to argue is that, in a sense, the ISIS is that camel that has demobilized the entire uh, uh, popular mobilization. And in a sense, while we all rejoiced that the Egyptian military did not fire on the protesters, the f- protesters went back home unscathed, but the Arab mobilizations were fired through ISIS. Now, why do I think so? Because I think if you look at, um, you know, this is a great portrait of that by, uh, 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 by George, I think, Bohagri or something like that. But anyway, it's an oil on canvas, and it displays that great uh, uh, you know, threat and that moment in the Tahrir Square when, when the state suddenly uh, wasn't able to do anything. It basically sent cameras through. What you see the ISIS is doing, essentially, is that it is reinforcing in the Middle East the discourse of stability. It is reinforcing the idea that as Arab citizen, you have only two options. You either choose between the strong man or the militia, Take your pick. There is no middle option. And in a sense, ISIS to me is that tug on the camel that has gone through popular Arab mobilizations and demobilized them. Now, why do I say so? Why do I think that it might be an institutionalized response? Because if you read uh, Paul Pearson's excellent book, Politics in Time, he says, if you want to consider modern social science analysis, timing is very important. And two things about timing. When events take place and the sequence in which they take place. Timing and sequencing both matters. And putting that concept here, you could see how that timing and the sequencing really what it is doing to the region. Here is an example. These are different numbers. For shortage of time, I would just say these are various regressions that were run on, you know, these are variables from... Uh, Arab barometer um, uh, studies, and they're asking citizens about, you know, your economic worries, your family values, etc. But what caught my imagination was that all across the GCC states, high oil-rich countries, it's highly significant coefficient, is that all these countries, controlling for a degree of factors, these are the countries, these are the citizens that benefit from the most generous social contracts in this world. Everything paid for, but they have huge fear of chaos. Of course, part of the argument is about stability, but part of it 
is that this order in the GCC depends on disorder in many of the neighboring countries, at least at this moment. Why do I say so? Because violence, as Hannah Arendt says, always represents a loss of power. The regional discourse of stability suffered a heavy blow with the result of Arab mobilizations. ISIS has introduced a moment of suspension. It's a moment in which the old power structure recalibrates and reasserts itself. I think in political economy terms, it's very interesting that many of the states that have financed and sent fighters to the region, the likes of Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and others, are ones for which there's huge incentive to invest in violence because it's an optimal political strategy at home. Why do I say so? Because if you think about Manker Olson's The Logic of Collective Action, he talks about the way in which there's almost a zero benefit of coming out on the street. There are more chances that you'll be killed or you'll be, uh, you'll be uh, hurt. And so it's a key collective action dilemma. And what we are seeing here is that ISIS and the related conflict and chaos in the region has changed that cost-benefit ratio of protest. People are no longer... You know, even people who are unhappy with their regimes, they don't want to come out. And my sense is that if this conflict hadn't taken this ugly form, you would have seen more protests today in Egypt. The fact that nobody's actually rising up against uh, Sisi in many ways is because the regimes do not want to give concessions at this time because they know people, when they are faced with the choice between the strong man and the militia, they will always choose the strong man. And I'm, I'm telling you from personal experience because one of my very close friends works, and I'm not going to uh, name uh, the country, uh, in that monarchy where he works in the king's office. And he is a PhD in political science from the States, from Colombia. And he says he conducts polls every week for the king. And he says the king is happy. He's happy because people, when you ask all the people what is, you know, the concerns are the same. It's still bread, uh, justice, all the same issues that inspired the Arab Spring. But people say, we don't want to be like Syria. We don't want to be like Iraq or others. So effectively, investing in regional violence is an optimal political strategy because that has certainly given a certain lease of life to some of these regimes. There's another aspect which nobody's talked about, what this violence has done, which is that it's not the Arab borders that have changed. It's the border around Turkey that has changed, in my opinion. Because it's a new, land in, a new line in the sand around Turkey. The current Prime Minister, Ahmed Davutoglu, gave the idea of strategic depth, that there is zero conflict with neighbors. What you are seeing today is a strategic demise of an idea in action. It's gone. People were talking about the Turkish model of development around the time of the Arab Spring. Nobody's talking about it now. That model is still alive and well. But the very basis of that model, zero conflict, growing trade linkages with neighboring countries, is effectively dead. And it's dead not because somebody else has come and cut it. In fact, ISIS has provided the scissors to Ahmed Devatoglu and said, take these scissors, cut this model yourself. And that is exactly what he did. Now, this is a region which was an active trade corridor. This was a region where, before the rise of the ISIS, trade costs were falling actively in the Levant region. After the conflict, there's a massive trade diversion. So all these traditional routes in red lines have been changed into green lines. So you see an active 
trade shock. So even if the economic, the political boundaries of the region are redrawn or not, the economic boundaries are definitely redrawn. And certainly, ISIS has effectively circumscribed the Turkish model of development. Let me now begin to the final part of my presentation, which talks about the role of the external. And of course, this cartoon best depicts what we are seeing today, which is that a lot of these powers each have their own objective function. They are often conflictual. They're all self-interested parties. But of course, everyone wants to save the Syrians. You have to recognize that wherever violence takes place, it is profitable for many. We know it. A lot of activists talk about it. But social scientists, when they think about economic policy, they think about who benefits from those economic policies. So if you look at this recent estimate uh, from CIPRI, um, the United States and United Kingdom, one of the top uh, uh, sellers of arms in the region. And clearly, when Ashton Carter says, we might be in this war for another 30 years, it is a problem for me as a social scientist because I say, okay, is it really related to that or are there other interests that will benefit from that? And of course, if you were to look at the stocks of the top 10 defense companies since 2013, and this is relative to all the other stocks of companies in the S&P index, they're all rising, obviously because it's good news for them, at least uh, in terms of conflict. Much of the Western intervention in the region, in my opinion, violates the common social science logic. In my opinion, those were not Western interventions, they were Western interruptions, and there is a difference because interruption in a domestically evolved political economy process and interruption can be more dramatic, can be more problematic than an intervention. Because in an interruption, you actually take away the agency of the local forces that might ultimately create some kind of positive institutional outcome. I'm going to talk about three core insights. One, institutional change is slow, messy, incremental, for the most homegrown. This is... a you know, if you read the long process of development which just came out, it talks about how slow institutional reform is. And it says, the book says, it took England 200 years to make a transition from a minimally effective state to a developed polity. So nobody came to England way back in 1400 and said, the king must go, Assad must go. It was given the time to actually evolve through that process. Second, every social order even of the authoritarian variety, is aimed at controlling violence. And if you demolish one social order without replacing with anything, it's going to lead to chaos. So here is the counterfactual I want to pose. If Nehru, immediately after partition, after that great nationalist struggle against British colonial rule, had said, I'm going to disband the British Indian Army and the Indian Civil Service, India would have been broken into 20 pieces. That's precisely what Paul Bremer did in Iraq. The third aspect is the way in which procedural democracy is only one element of institutional development. Elections are important, but more important are the bargaining structures, the unions, the business associations, the different variety of different groups that articulate uh, grievances. You need dense relationships of economic exchange. You need what we call state capacity. And all of these, unfortunately, were lost in that process. If you look at the story of the way in which the Iraq constitution, it's a very, very sad story because you're talking about a process of constitution making where there was very little internal agency, very vague 
opaque, very hasty process. And whilst most constitutions in the world say we want to have a united country, we want to have one single army, we want to have one foreign policy, what this constitution effectively did was weak central government, a lot of fragmented sectarian and ethnic domains, giving veto power effectively to Kurdistan, and in the result, sowing the seeds for permanent fragmentation of Iraq. And of course, this goes against the grain of what Timothy Besley, the famous political economist at LSE, probably the best living political economist in, in this country, talks about when state capacity. And he says a lot of these different forces, high incomes, collective capacities, legal fiscal capacities, cohesiveness of institutions, they are bound by forces that reinforce each other. And there's a small line in that paper which is truly important for understanding the conflict in our times. He says, well, if you have a cohesive political institution, non-cohesive political institutions, it means there are many different disparate groups, they're not agreeing on things. If you do not have common interests, you have more redistributive interests. Then if you have organized opposition, you will have civil war. Now what effectively Western interventions did, they knew that they do not have common interest institutions. They knew that they did not have cohesive political institutions, and what they did was to organize the opposition. This was a definite recipe for a civil war. Now, of course, external interventions have undermined precisely that state capacity. Captured in these words of Hillary Clinton, we saw, we came, he died on Gaddafi's dead. Very uh, ironical that removal of those autocrats permanently fractured state capacity in Iraq and Libya. Because what you're seeing is that when you fragment state, states along sectarian and ethnic boundaries, you're creating divisive rather than cohesive political institutions. And what does that do? It effectively reduces the in incentive to invest in state capacity. So read any article on clientelism. You know, if you go back and read uh, an article by Hecken on clientelism in annual review of politics, the abstract would say, you know, this is, in a clientelistic system, you have two things. You have particularistic targeting. You target particular groups based on whether you're Kurd or Shia or Sunni or others. And two, contingency-based exchange. Now, of course, what this fragmentation is doing is it's precisely reinforcing that clientelism in the name of electoral politics, with the result that common interest institutions are more difficult to develop with these sectarian political. So, in fact, reading through some of these classic social science works, I was thinking this is not social science analysis of violence. Much of practical policymaking by the West has been violence to social science rather than social science analysis of violence. Now, of course, there is a pedigree for the historical pedigree for this, which is very important. Because what has happened in Iraq and Syria had happened in Lebanon. And in Lebanon, you might remember, there was this famous Lebanese muhassasa, this system of allotment. This was a system of allotment when Lebanon suffered decades of civil war, one and a half decade of civil war. The civil war ended with a peace, but that peace was a very costly because the peace was created on a consensual uh, consociation agreement which ensured that you divide the government amongst three communities. The speaker is going to be Shia, the prime minister Sunni, the president, Maronite Christian. Now, of course, that created peace, but it created a system in which spoils are created to be distributed amongst these people. There are multiple veto points, frequent institutional gridlocks, 
dependence on external actors for resolving conflict, constant, and these sectarian boundaries define the distribution of spoils. And what's interesting is that post-occupation Iraq and Libya represent very much what we saw in the Lebanese case. Now, before I end my presentation, a couple of more musings on, um, on failure of development strategy. And this really reflects, it emanates from this inability to think about post-conflict order. Because obviously violence is always a temporary instrument in the face of erosion of power. And as Hannah Arendt says, violence boomerangs. It turns against itself. This is the, this is the, this is the idea of history. Now, I come from Pakistan. I know what Pakistan did in Afghanistan. It was blowback to Pakistan. What Turkey is doing today will be blowback to Turkey. The way Europe participated in wars, today it's blowback through migrants. And if you're not an economist, if you're not a social scientist and only believe in Rumi, he said, living in this world is like standing on the top of a mountain. What you say or do echoes back. This is the way in which humanity proceeds. Now, if you think that violence is going to boomerang, is there any strategy to replace those rents from conflict with the rents for development? Hardly any. In fact, much of the focus in the new political settlements, there is absolutely no economic vision on the region. And let me give you one example. I think the failure of Western strategy in the Middle East is represented in one little statement that I'm going to make, which is it was not that it did not prevent the chaos in Syria or Libya. It was that it never made real effort to let Tunisia succeed. Because Tunisia was one country which could have succeeded. Yet all it got were promises. World Bank, IMF giving promises, will give you money, but there was hardly any support. Think about the Eastern European experience. Eastern Europe's political transition would have been absolutely flawed if European markets were not open to, uh, to Eastern Europe. Yet there was hardly any effort. The United States, Britain, France used its convening authority to create NATO sorties on Libya, Syria, Iraq. But where was the convening authority to create a development program, to create infrastructure projects, to connect these economies? And that, to my mind, is the singular failure. Why? Because as this paper by North on the violence trap says, economies are sometimes trapped in violence simply because there are no dense relationships of economic exchange. Wherever you have dense relationships of economic exchange, just like in a supply chain, you are, my fate is tied to you. Because I, if I'm making this laptop, and if I'm dependent on you to provide me the inputs for this laptop, I have to cooperate. Because without cooperation, the production line would be affected. So you need dense supply chains. That requires a larger project. And creating that larger project is obviously difficult because if Tunisia is a success story, it will be a real threat to some of the monarchies in the Arab world. And if the region is more interconnected, if it's more economically integrated, it can flout the historical mode of governance of divide and rule in this region as well. What I want to say in the end is that you, in political economy, we talk about neutral third party. You know, when I teach my students, some of them are laughing when I'm talking about neutral third parties. Because when you think about Douglas North's term, he says, for a state to have good institutions, you need to have a neutral third party. What is a neutral third party? It is a court 
can take your dispute, have it resolved. I think when it comes to conflict in the Middle East, I'm afraid to say much of what the Western policy in the region has been, it is not a neutral third party. And the classic commitment of commitment problem in that Daron Echimoglu and others highlight in the domain, which is, as a ruler, I want to give you all the great goods, but after coming into power in elections, I have all the incentives to renege on my promises. That's the classic commitment problem. The same commitment problem applies to many of the foreign powers. And the commitment problem really is how do you constrain the self-interested and opportunistic behavior of foreign powers? And of course, here is a figure that gives you a sense of, you know, this man is no worse than ISIS. He was the one who controlled vast rackets of informal economy uh, in Syria. Uh, these are all his palaces in, uh, in, in Paris. Uh, by the way, he also has a house in Mayfair. Um, and he lives very comfortably between Britain and uh, France, and he was a given, given a legion of honor. Now, obviously, we don't need to moralize why France, but as a social scientist, it's important for me to say every state has its own interest. And now, as a social scientist, we have to ask ourselves, how, when states pursue their interests, how does it harm the collective community, whether in this country or, indeed, in the Arab world? Let me sum up and say a few more things. Latent conflict, I think I've belabored that point quite a bit. The other issue that I would like to draw your attention to is that, of course, violence usually reflects some shrinkage of power, and that the short-term winner in all of this conflict is the regional order of stability that is based on authoritarian stability and fragmented states. But I want to leave you with an important question, which I think is very important both from the Middle East Center's perspective and Islamic Center's perspective, is that there is a real battle of ideas, as you would have seen in these slides. There's a growing divide between what the think tanks are arguing, the think tank scholarship, their perspectives on understanding conflict in the Middle East, and the social science analysis on, on violence. And whilst the official policymakers have clearly listened more to the think tanks, they've listened more to these communities. Uh, the social scientists, people like Douglas North, they were never really invited to Washington. You know, He would stay in his remote state in Washington, but he really had a great deal to contribute to this. I think this growing divide between the scholarship that caters to the powerful is the scholarship of the think tank and the scholarship of social science, that battle of ideas is as important as the battle of ideas within the worlds of Islam. And it is in that battle of ideas where both the Islamic Center and the Middle East Center has a great deal to contribute, both in terms of creating scholarship that is not only informing uh, public policy, but also critiquing poli public policy, and most importantly, a social science that reflects the conditions of ordinary Arabs. It is only by doing that that we will be closer to social science analysis. Thank you.